0: Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore the whys behind
1: our human behavior with researchers, authors, and practitioners in order to bring those
0: insights to you. And we are lucky enough to talk to some of the brightest people on the planet and We get to talk to them about things that make a difference. Things like power and influence,
2: Yeah,
0: uh, That's a great lead-in, Kurt, Uh, to this conversation
1: because we are sharing with you today a conversation we have with Julie Badalana. She is the Joseph C. Wilson Professor of Business Administration in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School and the Alan L. Gleitzman Professor of Social Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School, where she is also the founder and faculty chair of the Social and Innovation and Change Initiative.
0: Holy cow. Not not too shabby of a resume. Not not shabby at all. Nope. <laughs> not a bit. And our conversation with Julie focused on power and influence and movements and all of those things that impact us. And she brings a very practical, insightful manner to this conversation into what can sometimes and often is a very academic or intellectual conversation. I definitely agree with
1: that. Uh, This is a conversation that would be very useful for anyone who is in a leadership position. We also wanted to remind people that If they are interested in leadership, they can check
0: out the Behavioral Grooves website and look up the Leading Human playbook that we have available there. Yeah, Leading Human explores the human challenges, the stresses of working in a hyperdynamic world, and it not only provides insights on how to be a better leader in these times, it goes beyond just the theoretical and it actually gives you exercises that you can do with your team to make sure that you are being the most effective leader possible. If In this ever-changing world, having a deep understanding of how to apply behavioral science insights to better lead your team, well, Tim, I think that's pretty important.
1: Agreed again, Kurt. Leading Human is a book really in two parts. It's a playbook that provides you with the insights on understanding the issues and the science surrounding them and a workbook that gives you the tools and exercises that can be used with your team to examine those issues and to develop solutions. Combined, they can improve your team's habits, communications, psychological safety, and ultimately, their sales
0: and productivity. Yeah, and while you're out on the website, you can also sign up for our totally free newsletter. Wait, is that free? Free, totally free, Tim, no cost at all to anybody. Our, our newsletter is named Groovy Snacks, by the way.
1: Which, you know, which is a great freaking name. Fantastic, especially since you thought of it. There <laughs> oh, well, you go. I wonder why. There you go. Well, it's just a once-a-month compilation of great articles and insights, both from our guests, but also from around the world of behavioral science. And it will help you be more informed as well as maybe have a fun read every now and then. And it might even make you laugh. ha ha ha.
0: Maybe, hopefully, more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, so feel free to check it out after you sit back with a strong pour of influential brew and listen to our conversation with Julie Badalana.
1: Julie Badalana, welcome to Behavioral Groups.
3: Thank you. Delight to be with you today. (laughs)
1: It's a delight for us to
0: have you today. Kurt, you want to get started with the speed round? I would love to get started with the speed round. All right. So, Julie, coffee or tea? Which would you prefer?
3: I don't drink coffee. Uh, which is very unfrench of me. Yes. Uh, I, I have to say that, as you can hear to my accent, even though I'm talking to you from Boston today, I am not a pure Bostonian. I am a French American Bostonian. Uh, now, if you were to offer me tea, I would politely accept, but I would prefer to have herbal tea. If possible.
2: Ah. oh.
1: So, I, do you live a life without any caffeine?
3: So, you know, I seem to be a high energy person. So I don't know if I don't like too much caffeine or it is that my body cannot take too much caffeine. So mm-hmm. I do not really try to stay away from it, but I don't actually enjoy tea nor coffee.
0: Mm. So do you have a preference in the herbal? tea is there is there a brand is there a style that you you prefer
3: above <laughs> all?
0: hibiscus or
1: ginger or something
3: so uh, that, that takes me back to my childhood in france oh no and yes 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 <laughs> so there's this uh this very special brand called Saveur du soir that you know is well known in france and i actually like the mince licorice herbal
0: tea that sounds wonderful
1: that's yes, absolutely, absolutely wonderful Ab- Gosh, we could we could spend an hour talking about that, but we do have other things to cover. So, w- would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician?
3: Yeah, I would love to uh, invite you know like people in both categories. If I had to pick, I would probably go for one of my favorite musicians, a Belgian musician. His name is Stromae. He's a, a songwriter and and a singer. And uh, what I like about Stromae is that. Uh, Each of his songs tells you this uh, really intimate, personal story, but that somehow has a universal component to it because it relates to important social phenomena happening all around us. What I like about him, too, is that he's combining many different genres of music, and so each song has a very special universe from a musical standpoint, and the sonorities are very unique. And I would love to get together and have dinner with him so that I could better understand the creation process how he's writing how he's composing how he's relating all of the songs to what's happening around us in the world and and doing that in in such a masterful way
2: <laughs> wow i
1: love that that's it that's an explanation yes I want to have dinner with him too.
3: <laughs> you should make that happen. Well, there again. we go. We should do that. We could have.
0: We, that's our next podcast kind of thing: dinner with the, you know our guests and the, the the person that they chose, and we can just yeah. record that. There we go. Okay, so you've done a lot of research on power and different things, but power and authority pretty much the same thing, right? Oh
3: no! I'm so glad you're asking me the question, Kurt. <laughs> So, you know, I've been uh, teaching, researching on power dynamics in organizations and in society and advising people over the past 20 years. And I've done that. And my dear friend and co-author, Tiziana Cachario, with whom I've written the the book, Power for All, has done the same. And one of the reasons why we decided to write this book is because we've come to worry a lot about the misconceptions people have in mind about power. And one of those misconceptions uh, relates to the confusion between power and authority. Uh, and so you cannot imagine the number of people who come to me and, and, and tell me things like, you know, power is not for me, because at the end of the day, it's for the presidents, for the CEOs, for the top executives, for the generals, for the prime ministers, and so on. And I'm not one of them. But here is the thing. Um, power and authority are very different. What is power? Power is the ability to influence other people's behavior. And what is authority? Authority. Is the formal right to give orders and commands. Now, in some situations, uh, being in a position of authority and having that right to give orders and commands can indeed give you power. But being at the top is never a guarantee of power. Um, So many top executives, CEOs, uh, even members of governments I've talked to, you know, like come to meet with people like me, they close the door and behind the door they say, I feel powerless because they know that changes are needed, but they're not able to influence other people's behaviors to make the changes happen. So you may be at the top and have the authority. And in some situations, you may have a lot of power, but in others, you may actually not have the power that you need to make change happen. And conversely, you may not be at the top. And yet, you may actually have a lot of power. And And I have a, a, a great story I'd love to share with you on that. Yes, uh, please do. If, if I can. Yes, can I? yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So you're getting the French accent. I guess I have to take you to France at least once, you know, in our conversation. Excellent, excellent. So so I'm going to take you to France and I'm going to tell you about a study that a group of French researchers conducted in the 1950s. It's one of the studies we mentioned in in the book and we talk about it in chapter four. And so these French researchers at the time wanted to understand the factors influencing the productivity of workers on the floor of factories. So they contacted a company uh, named La Ceta uh, that was a company that produced cigarettes at the time. The first day they started their study, they did what we often do in those situations, we researchers. So they met with the leadership of the organization. They, they asked for the organizational chart and the leadership gave them the organizational chart. And then they went to observe what was happening on the floor of the factory. And they observed for a few days. And after a few days of observations, they actually asked to meet with the leadership of the factory again. And here is what they told the leadership of the factory. They said, well, you probably gave us the wrong organizational chart. So at that point, the leadership was quite annoyed because <laughs> as you can imagine, they actually didn't have multiple organizational charts. They only had one. And that's when the researcher said, but you know that, that doesn't make any sense. According to your organizational chart, the workers are reporting to foremen who are reporting to middle managers who are reporting to top managers. But the issue was that the researchers explained that anytime a top manager, a middle manager, or even a foreman would come on the floor of the factory and ask the workers to do something, the workers didn't seem to care. But when the maintenance workers in charge of fixing machines would come and ask the workers to do something, the workers were not excited. They were pretty frustrated, but they would immediately comply. The issue though was that the maintenance workers were as low in the hierarchy as the workers. So now the most powerful people in this organization were the lowest in the hierarchy, the maintenance workers. So now the researchers started thinking about how can that be the case? So they they, they went back to the floor of the factory, they further observed, they interviewed people, and that's when they understood that machines on the floor of the factory had a bad tendency to break. Right. And the only ones who knew how to repair machines were the maintenance workers. Now, the maintenance workers didn't have the kind of ethical approach to it that you would hope for. What they actually did is that they knew that they were the only ones who knew how to fix machines, and they were very careful not to share any information at the time with anyone as to how to fix these machines. <laughs> but where did their power come from? They controlled access to one of the most valued resources in the organization, a machine that worked. And and this is precisely what power is about. If power is about having the ability to influence other people's behavior, the question is, where does it come from? And, And now we can understand with this example where it comes from. It comes from control over access to resources others value. And the maintenance workers in that case controlled access to a machine that worked. They had the knowledge to make that happen and and that gave them a great deal of power so they had no authority but a lot of power
2: oh
0: wow that is fascinating and it- both Tim and I do some work with organizations. And one of the things that we've done is done some elements where I thought you were going with this was with the social dynamics and how, again, there's those interconnections between people. And sometimes it is that it's the gatekeeper that has the power. It is the person who is most socially influential who has the power. But this is fascinating. It's just a really interesting piece to say that, yeah, that org chart that we all look at and we think, isn't really how power is actually distributed throughout an organization.
3: You're right, Kurt. And in fact, you're touching on something critical because if the first step is now we've established that, right? Look at the organizational chart, but don't assume that it's telling you who has power and who doesn't. Like, it's just telling you who has authority and and over whom, right? Now... If you want to understand who has power, then you have to ask the critical question, what is it that people value? Mm. And who controls access to these valued resources? And that's what's going to enable you to map the political landscape. Now, you're right, Kurt, to point to the fact that relationships, right, your network of relationships can be a critical source of power. And in fact, in our research, uh, Tiziana and I have I- asked the following question, who are the most effective change makers? And that's probably related to the work that you you and Tim have been doing together, right? And we've actually had the opportunity to conduct this study at the National Health Service. This is the, the British healthcare system, right? NHS. And so it's, it's a huge bureaucracy, like a set of organizations. And so we had this opportunity to study a very large sample of change initiatives over time in the National Health Service. And so uh, what is it that we found? We found that the most effective change makers were actually the people who were central in the network of their organization. And what do I mean by network centrality here? They were the people to whom others went for advice. And what we see in other contexts is that these findings can be replicated. The most effective change makers are very often the people who are central in the networks of an organization or a sector of society. Those are the people others trust. And trust is a huge conduit of influence. And, and interestingly, we found that those central players were more effective change makers, regardless of their position in the hierarchy. So again, authority was not the key source of power for these change makers, but really the, the trust that they, they had established because people go to them because they value the advice that, that they're giving them and, and, and they know that these people will have their interest at heart
1: you know julie some we often think about power or i tend to often think about power as having influence over others but is our drive for power also to some degree related to the the desire to have a freedom from the influence of others over us
3: yes absolutely if you think about some of the fundamental needs that 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 we have we have a need for autonomy right and it is true that if you want to ensure your autonomy then you want to know that you're going to be able to accomplish some of what you want to accomplish and that you will not be manipulated by others and, and you'll be able to do that. And for, for that to happen, you're right to say that you indeed need to have some power so that you can follow the path that you want to follow. Now, when it comes to this need for autonomy, one thing I want to insist on, to because I think it's critical, is that we have to remind ourselves that we have this need for autonomy and others have this need for autonomy too. And I work with many leaders managers who from time to time lose sight of that. And and, and you know, they, they actually think that their their role as, as a boss is to just be out there and be very curious to what people should do and how they should do it. And they become very controlling. Instead of sharing the power that they have to truly empower the people they work with and enable them to pursue those their objectives with the autonomy they need, they tend to <laughs> want to again, controlling the aspect of what's done by the people on their team. And 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 they think that empowering them, relinquishing some of the power that they have. It's not the case. You know, the truth is that people want to work with people who respect their autonomy. And when you truly empower the people you work with, this is when they will want to work more with you. So, Julie, I mean,
0: I'm 54 years old. I've been in business now for 30 plus years. And the the idea of micromanaging has been a negative thing for plus 30 i mean well before i got into business right and and yet as you're saying it still is happening is is there something innate in our nature that lends itself to being a micromanager wanting to control everything why can't we get over this and in, in, in other words right i mean it has been known that that is probably not the best way to manage for a long long time and yet we still seem to do it
3: it's so an interesting question, Kurt, and I think there are multiple layers that we have to consider. Why is it that we still have bosses who tend to micromanage and why is it that we still have bosses who, for some of them, abuse the power they have and then try to really control every aspect of the lives of the, of the people they work with? If you think about it at the individual level, we all have different needs and wants. And some of us have a really strong need for autonomy. And then, sadly, in some situations, it can become pathological. And the need for autonomy, we talk about that in chapter three of the book, can become, in fact, a need for dominance. Mm. And we all can think of uh, pathological (laughs) leaders we've had the opportunity to interact with, work with, or, you know, have as leaders of uh, countries, you know, look back in history, recent and old, and think about what's happening around the world today. So we, we we all have examples in mind of people with this very strong need for dominance. And then what these people do, sadly, is that they tend to abuse the power that they have so that, you know, they can fulfill that need for dominance. So some of those individual tendencies can play a role. Now, I don't think we can account only though for individual tendencies, and it's not the case for everyone. Again, you've also been working, I hope, with the leaders who didn't have these pathological tendencies. Yes, right? yes. Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. But
3: still, you may have seen them from time to time engaging in micromanagement, and this is where I think we have to account for the role of the culture of organizations mm. and and also culture more broadly at the societal level. Um, so some, some people just try to empower the people on their teams, but they can be part of organizations in which the, the, the cultures are toxic mm-hmm. because, you know, like they actually reward the kind of abusing behavior instead of trying to sanction it. So we have to think about the, the role of organizations and their cultures. And then we should be thinking about culture at the societal level as well. Like a critical question for all of us is what is it that we value in leaders? And what is it that we reward? And I think that we still too often tend to uh, turn to leaders who, who send us messages that are of the kind of, yeah, you know, you should pick me because I will protect you. I will give back to you everything you had and and, and even more. And, and you want someone who can protect you and is projecting as much strength as I am. These people are not necessarily the ones we should be picking. We human beings have a, like two universal needs for self-esteem and for safety. So you can see the trap whenever someone comes and say, hey, I I can give everything you need to use so that your self-esteem will be boosted and I can protect you because I'm so strong. The risk is that we pick these people to lead our organizations. The risk is that we elect them. And we do so without paying enough attention to uh, not only that message of sending strength, but are they competent? Will they have the courage to implement the difficult changes? And do they truly want to empower others and and to enable us to fulfill our our potential? Or are they in these just to fulfill their own need for dominance? And if the answer is they're in this to fulfill their own need for dominance, then this is when we get in trouble. Because that's when our freedoms, our well-being in our organizations and more broadly in society can be threatened.
1: There is so much to unpack there. <laughs> and I love. Thank you so much, Julie. That was a fantastic explanation. And I want to get to this idea of powerful leaders in a few minutes. But a lot of the book is really uh, beautifully architected around people who are not in power and how to help them be powerful. We recently talked to Vanessa Bonds, who you know, has just done some wonderful work on and emphasizing this idea that we can underestimate the interpersonal power of persuasion that we actually have. And so you elaborated on this, you wrote that, you know, those who are most powerful are also the most unabashed in leveraging their power to gain yet more power, while the least powerful feel most uneasy about getting out there and seeking the resources that they need. And Julie, could you, this, I'd like to spend some time on this to get more of your your focus on how do people who are the, the neediest, how can they start to, in a more powerful way to accumulate and acquire the power that they need?
3: Tim, this is, this is indeed a critical issue to, and especially if you think about the motivation for why Tiziana, and, and I wrote that book, you know, the, the motivation is tightly connected to the question you're asking. We, we entitled the book Power for All because think about it, Machiavelli uh, now more than 500 years ago was writing for the prince. And so many of the books that have been written about power since then have been written for the people in power or for those who want to emulate them and and can somehow see similarities between those in power and who they are and and are sort of thinking, Now I I can become one of them, right? But we we were not writing only for the people in power. We were really writing for everyone, including those who've been excluded from power and who've been excluded from power for a long time. And so what is it that's at the core of our message in the book? Well, I'm going back to the fundamentals of power, right? Remember where we started? Uh, if power is about the ability to influencing other people, then the question becomes, where does power come from? And uh, what we explain is that power resides in control over access to valued resources. Mm-hmm. So I have power over you if I control access to resources that uh, y- you value and you have power over me if you control access to resources that I value. I may control access to a budget you need to complete the project you're working on. And if so, certainly if, if I control that budget, I have power over you. But in the meantime, You may be connected to uh, one journalist I absolutely want to talk to, and you may be the only people I know connected to this journalist. And if so you also have some power over me. So what is it that you understand when you understand the fundamentals of power? You understand that power is not a possession. It's, It's always relative. And I may not have any power over you today. It doesn't mean that it will remain the same for the rest of eternity right could actually change tomorrow and in the same way you may have a lot of power over me today but it it could potentially change tomorrow and so what does it mean for people then it means that the first step for every one of us is understanding power understanding how it works because then when you understand how it works you can start thinking in any situation about what is it that people need and want right that's number 1 uh, and and who controls access to these resources and you may start realizing that even though you were thinking you didn't have much power or maybe you didn't have any power well in fact maybe you do because we human beings do not only value money and material resources we do value them let me be very clear but we also value other psychological resources we value we were talking about it autonomy uh, for example affiliation belonging uh, achievement status morality but right. think about some of the iconic change makers like uh, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Nelson Mandela, more recently Malala Yousafzai or Greta Thunberg. What do they have in common? These people have been standing for moral values that have enabled them to gather some of us who want to stand with them and, and, and be associated with them and with these values. And so we've sort of rallied behind them to pursue the the critical essential causes that they felt had to be pursued at the time and still has to be pursued today. So when you understand the fundamentals of power, you can read the political landscape and you can start thinking about what you can do to build a necessary power base. And you may not be able to do much alone, but there's a lot you can do if you join forces with others. So Tim, I'm going back to what you said, right? Which is, let's not be naive. If we're talking about, for example, all of the social movements, take Me Too, take Black Lives Matters that are sort of that have emerged to try and fight and try and disrupt unjust power hierarchies, the work they have to do is 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 incredibly hard work. It's difficult work. It's 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 work that takes a lot of time. Right? We're talking about work ongoing over the course of multiple generations to fight these unjust power hierarchies. And, and the reason why it's so hard is because power is sticky. The power hierarchies are sticky, partly because those at the top reproduce them. And as you said, Tim, those who are disadvantaged also end up playing a role in in, in reproducing those power hierarchies. Not that they want to, but when you don't have access to any resources and you need to survive in a system, you <laughs> you start right. thinking at some yep. point, you know what, Let me let me say to myself, it's fine. And, and, and let me try and, and survive. So so now the, the critical thing is for people to understand power and then think about their sources of power collectively so that we can together disrupt the unjust uh, and, and unacceptable power hierarchies, which again is hard work, but, but we know from history it's feasible.
0: One of the themes of the book was really this idea that individuals who hold power can be overthrown by many people banning together. And what you've just talked about here—this idea that we are more powerful as a collective than we are necessarily individualistic—do you have a favorite story of how the many might have banded together to over overthrow the few? Is there is there one that kind of stands out for you?
3: Here's what I, I, I would tell you: what what I've seen in in the research I've conducted on you know these movements and 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 the power of collective action, the power of those collective social movements. What I've seen in my research is that for these movements to succeed, they need to not only agitate, which is sort of look at the existing status quo and then help everyone realize that the status quo is not acceptable anymore, but they also need to innovate and orchestrate. And let me illustrate that with an example. So I'm actually not going straight, Kurt, to uh, a success.
1: (laughs) No, we're getting to these three points. This is perfect, actually. But
3: I I, I actually want to talk about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Okay. You know, one, one of the more recent movements. And if you ask me, I would say, wow, what an effective level of agitation. And if you ask me, I would say highly needed agitation, right? The people who were part of the Occupy Wall Street movement were bringing everyone attention to the fact that, you know, the level of extreme inequalities we had reached was not acceptable. And by the way, it's still the case today. And the pandemic, if anything, has reinforced these inequalities. So those are really serious questions that we have to address. But what's interesting is that at the time, you know, they, they were very clear in articulating the grievances. They did that effectively. They mobilized a number of different channels of communication to mobilize people. And yet somehow the movement died. Right? It didn't lead to any kind of significant changes. Now, why so? Well, I would say, because in fact, yes, there was the agitation and it's always needed, But but what we didn't have at the time was a set of innovations, solutions to the problems where we could say, hey, you know, th- this is where we could go. Now, it didn't mean that the innovation didn't exist at the time, but, but the people who are part of the movement didn't really seize all of those existing innovations and, and put them in a narrative sort of saying, this is what the alternative status quo could be. Now, uh, I think the situation today in in you know this pandemic era is different, and, and I'm hopeful that things are going to evolve in the right direction because we've now become more aware of alternative ways of organizing social... Innovators, environmental activists have been doing an amazing job at trying to put together the, the new novel's way of organizing capitalism. So the innovations are out there. But now again, a set of innovations without orchestration is a set of potentially great ideas, but without impact. And so what you need is you then need to have people work together, the orchestrators, to implement the innovations at scale. And, and in the book itself, it's in chapter six. Uh, we actually give the example of Maria Rashid mm. in Argentina, who has been part of the LGBTQ movement in Argentina for a, a number of decades and was one of the leaders who pushed for the legalization of same-sex marriage in Argentina. And she did that successfully. And what's quite unique about Maria and the people who've been working with her, all of the organizers is that they were able to play the roles of agitators, innovators, and orchestrators. It was not an easy thing to do, but they were able to play all of these roles at once and they succeeded in uh, having the new legislation be, be adopted. But I think that's what's in it for every one of us is that we all have a role, a role to play. It could be that courage, you're going to be more at ease being an agitator and, and team. Maybe you're more at ease being an innovator and maybe I'm more at ease being an orchestrator. But we're all needed mm-hmm. if we want to disrupt unjust power hierarchies, be sexism, be it racism, if we also want to change the way we deal with environmental issues. You know, this is such a huge crisis. Look at the Fridays for future young people. Mm -hmm. They are agitating and they know innovation and orchestration are also needed.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let's get back to the powerful leaders. And uh, I was wondering if you've got some observations about the power structure that's happening, the way power is being executed both by Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine and by Putin in
0: in Russia. Any
1: any comments just about the power issues there for the people versus the autocratic leader?
0: And for listeners, I'm not sure when this episode is coming out. We are in the second, almost it's starting the third week of the of the war that is going on in Ukraine right now. So.
3: We are. And in fact, you know, I, along with the, the rest of the world, have been horrified by the news emerging out of Ukraine over the, the past two weeks. Right. Russia's unprovoked invasion of uh, its neighbors, of course, a terrible humanitarian crisis and tragedy. And, and I would say it's a very serious threat to the peace and stability of, of the global order. I think it's very clear to all of us now. Yeah. And there are some important lessons to be learned uh, by viewing this crisis through the lens of power it's interesting you're you're comparing and contrasting belensky and, and and putin let me start by saying that in one case we're talking about a leader that's a leader of a democracy uh, right. in, in right. the other case as you, you know you were highlighting in in, in your question we're talking about a, a russian leader who's the leader of an authoritarian regime right so critical differences when it comes to the institutions in place now Putin's behavior to me is a a clear example of the dangers of unchecked power concentration. Over the the past two decades, uh, Putin has really tightened his grip on on the political landscape in Russia. I don't pretend to know the the specifics of uh, Putin's mental state, but what research in, in social psychology has shown is that power does have strong psychological effects, right? And in the book itself, That's where what we refer to as the infernal trio. What is it that power can do to us when we are in positions of power for a long time? Now, apply that to someone who has been in a position of power for a long time in a situation where the norm has become the authoritarian regime, right? So what is it that power does to us? When we are in positions of power for a long time, we tend to have less empathy. We tend to develop an enhanced sense of agency. And we also tend over time to start and you know seeing our actions as legitimate, whatever we do. So now I would say all of that certainly applies to Vladimir Putin, who you know like is somehow convincing himself that you know what he's doing is legitimate and that it's fine to take action the way he is and to impose the narrative he's trying to impose. And clearly, his empathy is certainly not what you would expect it to be for any human being who would be seeing that level of suffering and be thinking we absolutely have to end that suffering and end it right now. Now, this is critical because this is the vicious circle, right, this is what can happen when people are in power and when dictators are in power. What we're seeing with Putin is not any different than what we've seen in history, which is when dictators are in place, these psychological processes kick in and kick in even more. So they start seeing everything they do as legitimate. They impose their views. Um, and, and then in addition to that, the playbook of dictators has always been the same and will continue to be the same. You know, remember what I said, we human beings have two deep needs for safety and self-esteem. Mm-hmm. If you your only objective is to increase your power and just continue to be at the center of a system in which you control everything, what do you do? You actually threaten people's safety and you try to make everything related to your self-esteem dependent on you. This is precisely what authoritarian leaders are doing. This is what Putin is doing. And, and if you want to make sure that people are not going to go against you, what else do you have to do? Well, you control the narrative and you make sure to tell stories that legitimize everything you do. That's the power of legitimizing myth. We also talk about that in the book in, in chapter six. And, and we're seeing... What's happening in Russia now? This is what's happening daily. Where you, when you look at what is it that Russian people get exposed to mm-hmm. through the media, they, they get exposed to the narrative that Vladimir Putin wants to impose in that environment, right? Now, if you compare that to Zelensky, in in, in the case of Zelensky, again, you, you have someone who's been elected. He is representing his people, and clearly, he's rising to the occasion in, in the in a quite extraordinary way. Like he's in a very difficult situation demonstrating empathy and and humility, but he's also very clear about the fact that he's going to be in this with the people of Ukraine and that they're going to be fighting to defend their rights and freedoms. And so instead of threatening, he's trying to inspire people to be out there and stand with him and all of the other Ukrainian people. As we discuss this crisis, I want us to be also very, very careful. There is no blaming of the Russian people there. You know, again, in general, uh, there are a number of Russian people who had the courage to, under this authoritarian regime, go out there and demonstrate. And, and we all know that they went straight to jail. Some people are also not aware of what's happening because of the propaganda we were just discussing. Yep. So this is a very complex situation for, for the people of Russia. And, and I'm sure that many of them will be absolutely heartbroken when they're going to learn about what was really happening in Ukraine as they were fed all of these fake information about the reality of the situation.
0: Julie, do you see any concern or have any concern in regards to with today and the technology that is there of the ability to track how people are, what they're saying online and a variety of other factors? As it goes to people in power and governments that then hold that, then is it less likely for people to be able to band together to take those people in power down because some of the technology that's in place? I don't know if you've done any research or if you have any
3: thoughts on that. Yes, we discussed that in the book, too. If you think about digital technologies and if you think, for example, about the power of social media, what's interesting is that all of those technologies and all of the tools have been used by movements. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. And sometimes in quite successful way, as a way to especially agitate, but not only, sometimes also to innovate and to orchestrate change adoption. So there's no doubt that the social media and, and the digital technologies can be leveraged to accelerate movements for change. Now, that being said, when you talk to leaders of movements and in the process of writing the book, we've actually Interviewed more than 100 people across the world to give life to all of our research, other people's research on power, and we've talked to a, a number of organizers and activists. One of them is Latasha Brown, who's you know that the founder uh, uh, and, and leader of the movement Black Voters Matter. And when you talk to Latasha and other activists and organizers, what they put emphasis on when it comes to the social media and digital technologies is that yes, those things can help because they can help you share your message, disseminate it. But we have to be very careful because there are risks associated with the use of these tools for organizers. Uh, one is the echo chamber phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yes, I may be disseminating my message, but if I disseminate my message only in a small group of people who all agree with me, we're not making any progress. And by the way, the risk is increased polarization because as we know, and that has been shown by research, we live in then you know different bubbles online and and, and it becomes harder and harder for us to talk. And so that that can be an issue. The other thing, and that would be a potential trap for organizers too, is that trying to organize online only is not enough, Mm. right? You also need to organize in person. You also need to bring people together so that you develop the sense of common identity that's needed so that people continue the hard and and long work of, of going against the existing power hierarchies. So that was a way to be try and be a little bit positive in starting with the positive side of things as to what organizers can do with the tools. But Kurt, I heard your question, which was really about now what about states and especially authoritarian regimes? Now they can use the access they have and control they have of all this information online to actually prevent people from launching movements, to control what's actually seen and and heard and listened to, and make sure that some people just disappear and that their voices are are, are not heard. Again, this is the playbook of uh, all of the dictators we know over the world today. That's exactly what they're doing, and that's exactly what's happening. So do I worry about it? Yes, this is indeed very worrisome. Add to that fake news mm-hmm. and then you have the a recipe for disaster. This is why I think that within our democratic societies, for those of us who are fortunate enough to be part of democracies, We have to be extremely careful and we have to be very vigilant and exercise a civic vigilance we all need to exercise to make sure that we collectively keep control over access to all of these technologies and that there is a real freedom of speech and that it's being respected across all of the different platforms. Now, I want to add to that that my worry is actually not only related to states and especially authoritarian ones when it comes to the use of those digital technologies and how they can be used to control people. I also worry about the power of big tech. Mm -hmm. And that's something that applies to democracies, that applies to the United States as well. If you think about it, we talked about the fundamentals of power, and I said power is about control over access to valued resources. Now, you do have a number of large tech companies today that actually know everything about our needs and wants. And they know that better than we do, right? Which is kind of unheard in history. And we also know that they can, through the use of algorithms, influence what we need and want, shape what we need and want, and and then provide to us for a profit what they made us want (laughs) and need.
2: Right. So so
3: this is a very scary situation. And uh, I think that Europe, has taken action on that front, you know, with all of the legislation related to the protection of personal data. And, and, and I think this is a critical thing that we all have to pay more attention to. Uh, and I think that when it comes to algorithm, we also have to all pay more attention, you know, in the same way as you you have, uh, you know, like uh, public entities responsible for regulating access to medicine and paying attention to how, you know, like a, a given treatment is developed and whether you can give access to people to that treatment without threatening their lives, we should be having, you know, an entity responsible for screening and evaluating and understanding and reviewing those algorithms. Uh, Because I would personally want to know how they were developed and what they're going to make me do or not do.
1: Right. Because we can't do anything about them if if they're all buried. They're all, all underground. Absolutely. That reminds me of something that you, you brought up the city of Siena and you talked about the nine as this wonderful governing factor, because you talk about regulation and this whole idea of the nine, it was this 15th century, uh, you know, Italy. These nine people in the city only had power for two months at a time. You know, this very short, so they set up a system that said, no one's going to get addicted because, because it keeps changing out. I guess I think about like term limits today in the U.S. Congress, but I also noticed that the nine, this model only lasted about 60 years. And, and i wonder they accomplished a tremendous amount during that time but why didn't it last longer and i wonder if there's an allegory to to today to to thinking about term limits and setting up systems that limit our influence
3: checks on power are absolutely critical and so term limits you know that that's definitely one of those and i described to you the internal trio right what power does to us and and what i want to insist on is that no one is immune to the dangers of power abuse. And I think this is absolutely critical to keep in mind. You know, I I talked about people who've been in power for some time and start thinking that everything they do is legitimate, who then also think that it's great for them to take action and who have less empathy. I should also add, and we know that from research, that when we are in power for long periods of time, that's when we become more obristic. So now, you know, think about the mix of all of these things. You start thinking, Oh my gosh! Aren't all these people lucky to have me? Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm so good and I can save everyone, and I I should just be imposing my view of the world on everyone because everyone is so better off, you know, thanks to to me, and and so yes, again, absolutely, term limits because what are and we explain that in the in chapter two of the book if if two of the main poisons of power are hubris on the one end and self centeredness on the other end, the question becomes. How do you counter them? And I'll tell you how. This is based on our research and other people's research. If you want to counter the poison of hubris, you actually have to cultivate humility. And if you want to counter the poison of self-centeredness, you have to cultivate empathy. And when our leaders cultivate humility and empathy, this is when they start viewing power as a responsibility. And this is when they're able to have a collective orientation. Now the thing is that over time, because of the psychological processes I described, no one is immune to losing sight of the importance of humility and empathy. So I would indeed never take the risk of letting people in power for a long period of time. Because if anything, then we expose ourselves to the risk that, you know what, one of them or maybe two of them will at some point say, people would be better off if instead of having this democratic system You know, I declared that I'm going to be the one in charge. A lot of the dictators who have, you know, created so much harm in history were elected. Not all of them, but a number of them were. So we have to be very, very careful on that front. And that's something we insist on in the book as well. Obviously, cultivating humility and empathy is critical. but, But back to your point, this is not enough. The institutions, democratic institutions, have to be preserved and enhanced. And that's about term limits. That's also about preserving the separation of powers, you know, judiciary, legislative, executive, those principles are, are, are central. And, and the other thing we have to do is we have to hold those in power accountable. Mm. And that's our responsibility as citizens. And when we don't do that, we, again, expose ourselves to the risk that uh, some people are going to acquire more power and, and use that power in evil ways.
1: So with all this discussion about the challenges that we have in our world today, the book is still optimistic. Uh, Power for All is, is a very optimistic book. You end certainly on a very optimistic theme. Uh, Julie, can you just share maybe some of that message of optimism and why you feel like it can get better?
3: Think it can get better because it's up to us. It's up to us to decide, right? Re- remember the two questions, what do we value and who controls access to the valued resources? We have decisions to make like mm. we uh, are still at the moment in time when this paradigm of neoliberalism you know that has been dominant co- continues to dominate and and the characteristic of neoliberalism it has is that it has focused all of our attention and energy on maximizing on one dimension profit and, and more broadly financial value now it's up to us what will we value in the future are we going to just double down and and continue with a system that just about, financial value, and profit. Well, my hope is that we won't, because if we do, this is all documented now in research, in in economics, and in sociology, across the field of social sciences. If we were to stay the course, we would further increase inequality, further destroy the planet, and further threaten democracy. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. And many, many people who are part of those movements for change that we've been discussing are currently pushing for us to to change our uh, culture and and to change the systems associated with that culture. One example is that you, you now have a lot of people pushing so that in the future, we're going to hold companies accountable not only for their financial performance, but also for their social and environmental performance. And we give the example of Gene Rogers in the book, who created the Sustainability Accounting Standard Board that has been part of this whole movement to create metrics to measure the social and environmental impacts of companies, right? This is just one example, but that's my way of saying that what makes me hopeful on that front is that, yes, there is agitation, but now we also have the innovations of the kind of the sustainability accounting standard boards. And you can tell that increasingly civil society governments, companies themselves are working together, realizing that we cannot stay the course. We have to save ourselves, we have to save our planet. And importantly, and my hope is that, this is why this book is really for all, it's not only for those who've been excluded uh, from power, it's also for those in power. Like those in power, those who concentrate all the wealth in their hands, they have to realize that it is in their interest to make change happen too and to share some of that power. Why? Because what we know again from research is that when the levels of inequality become too extreme, that's when societies become unhealthy. Mm -hmm. That's when they become less productive. That's when they become less safe. And so you may have a large slice of a pie, but the pie is shrinking. And and so it's in everyone's interest now to push for the change. So I'm also hopeful because listen, I I work with a lot of social change makers across the world. I created the social innovation and change initiative at, at Harvard University. I work with a lot of young people who are making the courageous choice to be part of all those movements for change. They want a fair distribution of power uh, in society. They are saying enough is enough. We have to put people and the planet at the heart of our economic system. And I have great faith uh, in in these young people. I'm not naive. Again, we know about the challenges. (laughs) Power hierarchies are very sticky, but change can absolutely happen and maybe if you allow me to maybe what I would do is end with a story on that front it's one of the stories we have in the book it's a it's the story of Nezuma and Jube we talk about her in chapter seven and it's a story about how technologies can be used to actually redistribute power and do that in, in an effective way and so I vividly remember the first time we met Nezuma Uh, Nezuma lives in Tanzania in a remote rural area and when we met she was explaining to us that when she was growing up in her village her dream was to become a teacher and she was never never able to go to school and then we asked her about power and and, and here's what she said she said Julia I for the longest time in my life felt I had no power and I think I quite objectively had no power because think about it all the decisions were made by the powerful members of the village council, and I was not a member of that council. And in fact, she didn't remember that a woman had ever been part of that village council. And so even though Mezuma felt quite powerless, and as she said, was objectively quite powerless right for the longest time in her life, in, in 2016, her life radically changed. She went from feeling and being objectively quite powerless to becoming one of the most powerful members of the community. Now, how did that happen? It happened because she encountered the path of an organization called Barefoot College. That's an international NGO. And Barefoot College has developed this truly innovative program that enables women across the global south to become solar engineers over the course of five months through learning by doing and peer-to-peer learning, even when they are illiterate. So Barefoot College came to Nezuma's village. They explained that they needed someone to volunteer to study for five months, and that after this person would come back to the village with all of the equipment to electrify the village and bring electricity, reliable access that was missing. The members of the village council immediately said, yes, we want to do that. So men raised their hand. And that's when Barefoot College said, it will have to be a woman. That's when Nezuma raised her hand. And Nezuma actually then, Uh, ended up going to the city and studying. As you can imagine, her husband at the beginning was not in favor, but the (laughs) members of the village council worked together with the Girlfoot College representatives to convince him. So she went to the city, she studied, she came back, she electrified the village. And she didn't only literally bring power to the community in doing that. She also became one of the most powerful members of the community, right? And, And in fact, she became so powerful that she was later asked to sit on the village council. And now she had authority as well. And she's very proud to be representing the interests of women on that village council. And that's happening for the first time. And I wanted to end with this example because again, there are ways in which we can change existing structures of power. And yes, technologies can also help us do that. But the solution is never purely technical. It's political. It has to be intentional. It takes work. It takes, again, agitation, innovation, and orchestration. But when it happens, it can radically change the face of our communities and our societies. And so that's why I'm hopeful.
2: Yeah.
1: You should be hopeful. Uh, and especially with all the enthusiasm, we are hopeful as well. And I don't have an easy segue, but I'm really curious about your playlist. And we're hopefully coming out of a couple of years of pandemic. And I'm just wondering, is what you're listening to today any different than what you've listened to over the past couple of years? Or?
3: Interestingly, what, what I'm listening to today has a connection, in fact, to the pandemic. I'm going back to the musician I mentioned at, at the beginning of our conversation. I'm I've been listening over... The past week uh, a lot to Stromae, this Belgian singer and and, and songwriter. Uh, He has a new album entitled "Multitude" uh, that that just came out. So he's singing in French. And and as I mentioned early on, I like the storytelling associated with every one of the songs. And and there's one song in particular I've been listening to and I I want to mention. The the title of the song is Santé. And the, the song actually came out at the end of 2021 and is part of this new album that you know the album itself just came out a few days ago, and it's a special song to me because it's an homage to all the essential workers ah. uh, whose work is taken for granted, who are too often treated poorly in service jobs. And so he in the song is raising his glass to those who do not have one, to the people who prepare our food, who take care of everything that has to be taken care of, so that you know we as a society can be resilient. We can all do what we have to do, and so that's a, that's a beautiful song and. My hope is that (laughs) we are not going to stay at the discourse level and talk about the importance of essential workers, but that we're not only going to continue to listen to those songs like this one that I think is a great one, but that we're actually going to empower uh, workers and not only raise the salaries, but also give them a voice and a say in in the strategic decisions of of companies. And uh, I've been part of a, a movement on that front called Democratize Work. That's all about giving more power to, to workers. So that's yeah. what I'm listening to. And, and that's how it's connected to the pandemic.
1: I love this idea of sante, which is what what the French say when they're toasting. You you're holding up your glass, you're you're gonna toast, you're you're embarking on something new, and it it is an honor. And I love that they, that he wrote the song called Sante. That that's terrific. Julie, this has just been a delightful conversation. We are so grateful to have you as a guest on Behavioral Groups. We hope we hope you come back and join us some other
3: time. Thank you so much for having me. So enjoyed discussing everything with you.
0: Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Julie. Have a free-flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our powerful brains. Yeah, power-filled brains. That's what I should have said, not powerful. Hey, power-filled. Bo- both, brains. right?
1: Our brains are both powerful, and they can be power-filled with Julie's, you know, uh, coaching and support. And her directive is: everybody should feel powered feel enabled. Yeah. Go out and do it. Yeah.
0: Well, and I like this idea that power and authority are not the same thing, yeah. right? That yeah. that while authority is this the right to give orders and commands, power is really the ability to influence people's behavior. And I love that differentiation. I liked it too, and I also
2: like
1: the way she framed power as coming from sort of the control over resources that other
0: people want. Yeah, and resources often, I mean, I think resources often it's like, oh, you have these things, but sometimes resources are information, sometimes they're charisma, sometimes they're social aspects. So power is a multifaceted aspect. Yeah, that I think is really really cool. Yeah, so
1: your own skills, yes. your, the, the your own strength, the things that differentiate you can be resources that can make you powerful. Mm-hmm. I just want to encourage people to do that.
0: I know, and I wish I had some of those so I could be powerful. I do too. I wish <laughs> you. I wish you had some of those too. <laughs> oh man. So what? What else, Tim? What? What did you like?
1: I really like the way Julie packaged this agitation, innovation, and orchestration stuff, this whole idea of breaking down, because it's really easy to think about movements in terms of these three aspects, right? If we think about Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter, agitation, man, they're really good, right? They're doing a great job on the agitation. They're really getting the word out. They have huge social media stuff. They broadcast their messages just magnificently. When we get to innovation, like the actually developing the solutions, a little weak there, you know, not so strong on the solution development and orchestration, actually implementing these ideas, bringing these ideas to life. You know, they're just thinking about these two examples, not super strong on actually manifesting these important concepts that they're behind.
0: And I like this idea, too, because while we talked about these large social movements, as you said, BLM and, and Occupy Wall Street, the same aspect, though, can be about having a movement within your company, within your organization Whether it be a company of 100 people or a company of 5,000 people or your local community, you know, PTA board, right? Right. You need to be thinking about what is it? It's almost like a, you think about the hero's journey and how a story is a, a narration, right? You have the issue, that's the agitation. What is the, what is this piece that is getting people worked up? And then you have to, Figure out a solution to it, right? And then, all right, once you've figured out that solution and an innovative solution, not just the way that it's always been done, you have to think about things from a different perspective. You have to bring in different insight in order to make it so that it's compelling for people to join in. Because if it's the same old, same old, they're not going to join in. Same thing in a story. story you've heard before. Well, it's pretty boring, right? Right, You're not going to be involved in it. And then finally, you have to actually have some culmination. You have to actually have it do something. You need to bring this together into this, as she says, orchestration is making these good ideas come to life. Right. Yeah. Right. You know,
1: for some reason, while you were saying that, I was thinking about a couple of things. One is John Levy's talk about influence. Oh, yes. And when he he talks about, say, so we can't do it all. We're we're not going to be the most influential person in every situation. So we need to align ourselves or develop relationships that can help us be influential. But he said, let's say you're, you're, buddies with Mark Zuckerberg, you know, the head of the head of Facebook, but what you really need is to get your daughter into a really good daycare. Mark Zuckerberg is not the guy that you want to help influence that because he's not going to have any influence over, <laughs> over the daycare, right? You, you kind of have to be thoughtful about where you want to exert power and influence in your life and sort of what's appropriate for that context for that situation. Yeah. So if if you want influence over the daycare, you should probably see if you can get on the board or, you know, do some
0: volunteering there or something. Julie talked about this as in movements and in power and yes. different things. But if you take this agitation, innovation, orchestration model, even in your own life, I mean, think about this from a motivational perspective, right? This idea of what's going to motivate well you got to be agitated right? You, right you don't have to be but you know if you're Helps. agitated you're you're going to be more motivated and then you gotta uh, what's the innovation part how is this being exciting for you what are you doing that's new that's different and then you get the progress part the last part is this progress part so it's kind of this I so like I I'm Taking this motto and applying it probably in ways that it shouldn't be applied, but man, this is this is pretty cool. I like it. I like it. Can I rant for just a second
1: on growing up? I remember hearing the comment that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Okay. Julie just made that come to life in spades, right? <laughs> you know, like she, you know, the psychology behind it is really, really clear. Yeah. You know, she talked about the infernal trio. That's what really hit me. It's like, wow, we've got she can really identify the negatives that power has on people, on
0: individuals who are in power. And the long-term impact, right? Long-term, this right. idea that you lose the sense of empathy that you might've had coming into this powerful position, enhanced sense of agency that, hey- Anything I do is great. Uh, yeah, this idea that that I'm all power, that I say it and it gets done, right? And the tendency to see one's own actions as legitimate, regardless of yeah. whether those actions are good or bad or even indifferent, you you always see them as being, well, of course they're good because I did them, Right. you know? Right, R- lacking in complete
1: objectivity. <laughs> it, the whole world becomes this big subjective, you know,
0: experience for you. Which I think is a really good kind of marker for us to be saying that we need to be very wary and watchful for this. Mm-hmm. And I I look at current events and you can just see this happening. You can see it in, in in the world stage with Putin, who has now been in power for a long time. And he has pretty much absolute power over kind of that role. You look at the Congress today and in, in the US, and you look at people who have been in those positions for. Not just 10 years, not just 20 years, 30, 40 years for some of them. The average age of a U.S. senator, I think, is just keeps expanding older older and older and older. And this idea that we have to be really careful that people who have been in these situations and these these powerful positions that – you know, it, they can have the best intentions in the world, but this is stuff that happens. And so, and, and we've talked about tribes and we've talked about in-groups and out-groups and Democrats versus Republicans and all of those different pieces. Yeah. And we actually should be more concerned about those within our own party or our own tribe, because those are the ones that we would tend to overlook because some of the things that they might be well said, you know, doing are there, but that's where we need to be wary. The sword cuts both ways. And it leads me to ask you this. What can we do about it? Well, Where, where should we start, I guess? Well, I think, A, we can set up systems. So one of the things that Julie talks about is this idea of setting up systems to give people power who don't have power right, right. now, because that's one of the things. Power is kind of the self-fulfilling kind of thing. I have power, therefore I can set up the system and the, the things in order to me, for me to maintain that power. And so the more that we can do to break that cycle, to make this so that all of a sudden we are not just – Not just the powerful who remain powerful, but you can bring others into this power mix, the better that we can do. The Barefoot College
1: example was great, where they set up a system that said, we're going to come into your village, we'll bring uh, solar power to you, but the representative who learns how to to run it has to be a woman.
0: Yes, I love that. So So think about that. Think about how you can set up systems within your own organization, within whatever community work that you're doing. You know, if you're in a leadership position, how do you give others power? And I think set up those so that that can happen. And then I think the other piece, at least in my perspective, is take those movements, that that idea, this, you know, this agitation, innovation, orchestration, Mm -hmm. and utilize that, right? Right, right. And bring that to bear. You can change that. So (laughs) that's the dog in the background. Here we are. Here we go. So anyway, you can take that and you can utilize that in order to initiate the changes that are necessary.
1: I think we also need to get beyond this idea that agitation is enough. Just coming up with a whole bunch of ways to stir the pot are really good. Uh, movements have to get beyond this. They need to think more in terms of, okay, so as a collective, we can stir, stir the pot but what's the point of it? What's the solutions? What are the things that we're? What are the policies that could come from this, or or the new rules for engaging our own employees? You mm-hmm. know, if we really want to stir the pot, what's the point of it? Yeah, and then develop some way of manifesting it, bring it to life in some way. Yeah, have a way to get to the other side of just an interesting idea because. Interesting ideas die on the vine. Yeah. You got to put it to, into action.
0: Yeah. And then I think we ought to make leaders, leaders for life. What do you think? <laughs> Once you get in that position, leader for life, done, you, you got it. And and it passes down to your your, your children and their no, children's children.
1: No, we didn't get enough time to talk about this in our conversation with Julie, but I love the part in the book where she talks about the nine, the the ruling group in, in Siena, that every two months, one of these nine members... Has to retire, you know they're they're done. Like they get two months and then they're done. Yeah, and you go, wow. Like if you're you're vested for two months, you are not going to build systems, you know that uh, basically line your pockets for the long term. Yeah, because you only got two months. So power
0: should be temporary. Yeah. Oh, oh. So (laughs) so leadership should have term limits. They should have some components that are like saying, hey, how do you get out of this? Not only how do you get into this position of power, but then how do we yes. make sure that you are leaving? And, and I think it's one of the great things that USA did. And I, I go back and people ask like the you know favorite president. And I always point to George Washington just because he at that moment, when he said, I'm not running for a third term, it was like, what? right. Like you're giving up this all power. this power everything voluntarily, yeah. And the idea that then that was kind of the precedence that was set and how that worked, I think, is really key. And and so yes, we need to be able to think about how do you put in these elements that are going to allow people to leave and set the precedence for them to leave in a way. That is easy and good and makes it makes it happen. So, interesting question to leave with.
1: Who's if you live in the United States? Who's your favorite president? If you live in a, a country with a prime minister, who's your favorite prime minister? And is that a person who who adhered to power, who clung to power, or is it someone that got up and walked away from it?
0: Ooh, good question. All right, I think that's a good point to wrap all of this up, Tim. And as always. Thank you for listening. And please, please, if you want to reach out to us on social media, we would love for you to do that. We are always looking to have conversations with you, our listeners, to find out more about how we are doing. And what you would like to hear from us. If you have ideas on who we should be interviewing, send them our way. If you yeah. wanna talk about some of these concepts that we just talked about from Julie or any of the other conversations, hey, send us a tweet, get us, uh, you know, message us on LinkedIn. We're, we talk about this stuff. We like to <laughs> we talk, talk about this stuff. We love
1: to talk about this stuff. Yes. So, yeah.
0: And we truly appreciate
1: you spending time with us. And we hope that you've learned something that maybe you could actually take out and use. So hopefully this week, you can go out and find your groove.